Hi, I'm Stu Hynek, author of How to Get a Meeting with Anyone, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Stu Hynek. Dubbed by the American Marketing Association as the father of contact marketing, Stu Hynek is a Wall Street Journal cartoonist, Hall of Fame-nominated marketer, and the best-selling author of two marketing books. Stu is here today to talk about his latest book, Get the Meeting, which is a sequel to his first book, How to Get a Meeting with Anyone. He lives outside of Seattle, Washington, and is also the founder of Cartoonist.org, a group of Wall Street Journal and New Yorker cartoonists who donate their art to help charities raise funds. Welcome, Stu. What a pleasure to be here with you. Same here. Say, Stu, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? You know, I kind of, I have to wince a little bit. Well, here's the thing. When my brothers and I were... I don't know, 10 or so, we used to sneak Playboys out of my father's dresser drawers. I think we were like everybody, at least a lot of young boys our age. And so we would look through the magazines and of course we looked at the pictures, but what I was, I was really fascinated by the cartoonists and the cartoons in there, but I'm really about who are these guys? Who, who are they? Who does these? How do they do these things? And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about two cartoonists in particular, Gahan Wilson and Eldon Dadini, and they both had full-page, full-color cartoons in in every issue of the magazine. And they both became my, they became associates. They became part of my group later in life of cartoonists in my business. Oh, wait a second. You were able to meet them later on. Oh, yeah. They became my mentors. It's like I was raised by wolves, you know, <laughs> to have all these New Yorker and Playboy and basically New Yorker and Playboy cartoonists who became part of my group. And man, I've learned so much from them about cartooning. So I would say it's probably them. So I have to ask, uh, how old were you when you reached out to them? And how did you make contact, maybe as a teenager, with these professional cartoonists? Well, it wasn't as a teenager. It was uh, later in life. I was um, I graduated college, USC, and I studied marketing. And so I, I was moving into the marketing arena. And the thing is, I wanted to, I was also a cart, I was, you know, playing with cartooning, I suppose. I'd always been fascinated with it, probably since that time. And I, I was a member of the Cartoonist Guild, and, and they had supplied all sorts of information, including one article from Folio that said that readership surveys conducted by magazines and newspapers were finding that cartoons are almost always the best remembered part of the publications. I thought that's just huge. And you know what? I want to mix cartooning with, well, the time, with direct response marketing, and I want to work with the big magazine publishers. And they had huge budgets and they were very, very sophisticated users and testers of direct response. And so I started playing around. I'm going to drift into a story that we might want to tell a little bit later. But basically, I, I started using cartoons in direct marketing campaigns and they worked. They were working really, really well. Then part of what I wanted to do from there was pull in a lot of the cartoonists that were my heroes into my group. And so I started with Leo Cullum, who's one of the New Yorker cartoonists, and, and Eldon Dedini and, and Gahan. They were, they were the first ones that I went for. And what was it like when you reached out to them? Did you just simply say, we're starting this organization and it seems like you guys ought to be part of it because of your prominence and what you would bring to it? What, how did you sell them on what they would get out of the organization that was in its nascent stage? 
Yeah, I think it was, it was basically, look, I've discovered a new use for cartoons and a new market for it. So I want you to become part of my group and be exclusive to me. And I, I, you know, we'll, a lot of people will hear about what we're doing. I don't want you working with them. I want you working with me and I'm going to bring you a lot of money. And that's what I did. Yeah. So there's the, the part of self-interest that probably caught their attention. Yeah. Well, you know, it opens when you're opening a new market for cartooning for an art form like that, I think it's, that's significant. And of course they want to be involved. And in fact, really that's what cartoonists.org is about. It's about opening, well, really using cartoons in a way that helps charities raise funds. We, we, donate art to help charities raise funds, but it also raises the profile of, of single panel cartooning as collectible art. So there's still that same aspect going on. I'm opening up new markets. I bet you that's an area of interest for a lot of people listening, how a cartoon could be used to raise funds. Can you share an example of how that served a particular organization, Stu? Sure. Well, you know, let's see. Primary thing is that we have art, usually it's prints or stretch canvas prints, of our art, and we donate it to, which supply it to the charity which, that is uh, about to have a gala event. I mean, most of them have gala events annually or semi-annually, and a lot of them have live auctions. And so that's where they'll bring this piece of art up and they'll say, okay, this next lot is a donated piece of art from cartoonist.org by one of the Wall Street Journal cartoonists. And whatever you spend goes to the, is retained by the charity, so 100% goes to the charity, in other words. And so they sell it at auction. And see, that's great. It it serves both purposes. It raises funds for the charity, but it also puts that form of art out in front of the people who probably are some of the more likely people to collect art and buy art. And I want them thinking about that as, as collectible art. What's one of the more prominent or memorable auctions that you got to participate in, either with your own art or someone who is a member of cartoonist.org? Probably one of my favorite stories, though, actually happened on the island because someone approached me. They heard about what, what I was doing, and, and they said, well, we have an auction coming up uh, next week at the Rod and Gun Club. Okay, great. You, would you donate a piece of art? Sure. And it turned out that there were two bidders um, sort of having a bidding war over it, I heard. I wasn't there. I was um, somewhere else. But a bidding war between the mayor's wife of our little town of Langley and someone else. And so I thought, well, great, because a bidding war benefits the charity. That's fantastic. Love that. And I also loved just hearing that people had that kind of appreciation and desire to have the cartoon as art up on their wall. See, what I resonate with is that how quickly cartoons make an impact and an emotional impact where people will fold over their magazine or paper or pull out their phone and show it sounds like, get a load of this. And instantly there's a connection made because of the shared understanding of the wit or the perspective of the cartoonist. It's a really quick way of making a point and bridging a gap. And when you do that in an auction, people are, are enjoying it, they're laughing about it, and they're saying, I want to bring that experience into my home or share it with you know, my audience. I imagine that a lot yeah. of that is what takes place. Yeah, I think so too. And that's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's great for, again, it's great for the charity to help the charities. I love that fact that we can help charities raise funds. And it's also great for the art form because they, they realize they sort of come to learn it from a new, um, a new paradigm, not just seeing it in publications, but now, oh, we could put it up on our walls. You know, mm-hmm. it's a simple thing, but it's a, it's actually a really big leap to bring people. It was a big leap even for me to see it that way. So it, it helps both missions. It's interesting because I, I recall seeing Disney doing that with cell prints from long ago in the 50s, like with Dumbo and with Mickey Mouse 
when those panels first came out. So he's kind of been, or the Disney Corporation, more accurately, has been doing that for a while. But to think of that as single-pane cartoons, I think, is a unique perspective. Yeah, single-panel cartoons are a little different. And you're right, yes. And it, and it's part of what prompts me to do this because I'm thinking, well, I'm not even sure if the sales that they're selling are actually part of the productions. <laughs> I, I think they might be just souvenirs. I'm not sure. I, I, I really don't know. But then I'm just realizing, well, yeah, but okay, people read magazines, maybe a little less so than, than before, but they a lot of people are reading these publications and they love the cartoon. I mean, as you said, the cartoons create this connection with people because, well, I can tell you why. It's humor is about truth being revealed in a twist. It's why when we're laughing at something, we're always finding ourselves saying, oh my God, it's so true. <laughs> we, before we can even stop laughing, we're saying, oh my God, that's so true. And that's what it is. It's about truth being revealed in a twist. And we revere those things because I think because we value truth. You know, that's true. Yes, that's how it is. And and so you can have a cartoon that expresses that, but it does it in this delightful way. So you've written, this is a great segue to the book, Get the Meeting. It's a witty, practical guide to encouraging people to take bold, creative steps to meet with people for mutual benefit. It's a very much for people who are small business leaders like our audience. Oh, yeah. And tell me, what is the gist of what you want someone to take away after reading uh, Get the Meeting? Well, I think, you know, it's actually something that I keep using as a headline. One meeting really can change everything. And it can. I mean, you can... Small businesses don't have to, they don't have to stay small. Small businesses don't have to deal with, um, let's say, small customers. They can be dealing with customers or clients that can change the scale of everything. Or they can be reaching out to potential strategic partners, for example, or mentors, or there are all sorts of people you could be reaching out to, but certainly those things are useful. And I mean, I run a small business, but I work with a whole spectrum of businesses from startups to Fortune 250s. And small businesses can do any of that, all of that. So what's something you had to make prominent in your mindset in order to do business with the largest publications on earth, in order to build those relationships? What did you have to be thinking about in order to make that successful rather than getting overwhelmed? You know, I think that's a great question. And I don't know that I, I was never overwhelmed. I, well, I was overwhelmed, let's say, you know, oh my God, I just got Sports Illustrated as a client. How cool, <laughs> you know? But I don't think I was saying, oh my God, that's just too much. That's too high, too lofty. I wanted to get them all and I did get them all as clients. And it was because I had, I don't, it's because I had a different, maybe a different um, approach to direct marketing that that I knew would work. And it was based on, it was, let's say, tied to my passion for cartooning as an art form, but also as a phenomenon. I mean, as a device, it's just amazing. They, they really cause people to, well, I mentioned before that they're the best read and remembered parts of magazines and newspapers, but if you put it on a piece of mail, then it makes that piece of mail stand out in that stack of mail that comes in and people pay attention to it. And I, you know, then we heard stories of, I heard many stories of people clipping out the cartoon from our mailings and sticking it up on their fridge and keeping it there for years. So Stu, talk about, talk about how you've taken the refrigerator clipping and turned it into more of a business process because you actually have a process that you use with your cartoons that is part of your small business. Can you explain that please? Yeah, yeah. Well, well. I mean, so actually, what happened was, as I was working to enter the the arena of big publishing and creating direct marketing campaigns for them, here's what happened: I created two test campaigns, one for Rolling Stone, the other for Bon Appetit magazine, and both of the test campaigns that I produced for them 
beat their controls, which meant that you know, in statistics, you always test against the control group. So in direct marketing, you're testing against the most effective thing they've ever put in the mail. That's the control. So if you tie the control, you've just tied the record, the all-time record. If you beat it, then you just set the new record. And we, my first two times out, for the, and these are pretty big name magazines, I beat their controls. So I wanted to bring it to the rest of the publishing industry. And I started with this little campaign, didn't know what to call it. So I called it a contact campaign, but it was a, an eight by 10 print of a cartoon personalized with each recipient's name. And that was kind of what, it, that was the device I was using. It's the personalized cartoon to draw people into the envelopes and into the, into the mailings as well. So I sent an eight by 10 print with a note that said, this is the device I just used to beat the controls for Rolling Stone and Bon Appetit. And I think we should put these to the test for your titles. Let's talk. And, you know, when I'm speaking to an audience, I love this part because I'll, I'll ask them, you know, what do you think I got for a response? And like, before I even say, before you even say anything, let me just preface this by saying that in direct response, in that, in that arena, they always, people would always say, if you get a 1% response rate to a mailing, that's about typical. That's you, you've done pretty well. Actually, there's no such number, but let's use 1%. And then you compare it to then, let's say, click-through rates in, in digital marketing. And those are hundreds or thousands of a percent. So what do you suppose I got to this campaign, this contact campaign? And people will guess they'll sort of be you know, maybe 10%, 15%. And actually, it was 100%. And it wasn't a trivial sample either. It wasn't no. like 10. <laughs> no, it was, it was 24 actually <laughs> or so, but, but it was all of the big publishers. It was all yeah. of the, the circulation directors and consumer marketing directors for the biggest publishers out there. Time Inc. and Time Warner, sorry, Times Mirror Magazines and Bonnier and, uh, I don't know, I can think of Forbes and the Wall Street Journal and so on. Conde Nast. So even, even though it was a smaller set, they were far more discriminating and far more difficult to get through to than the average potential buyer. They were, but these are this actually, this is a great illustration of what contact marketing is and how it works and the economics of it, because I needed to reach these 24 people. Really, that, that meant that I would have broken through completely to this industry of, of public magazine publishing. And so I ended up getting 100% response rate. I broke through to all of them. And all of them then became clients. So it was not only 100% response, but also 100% conversion. And that all came from a campaign that cost me about $100. And it was worth millions of dollars to me because it launched my business. And that's the power and the sort of, it's a great illustration of what contact marketing can do and what's, what it's meant for. That's terrific. You know, and it also speaks to one of the principles that you cover in the book. Can you talk through and explain deep versus wide contact marketing? Well, actually, it's deep versus wide personalization. Personalization. Uh, and it's a great question because, you know, what, so when I was creating all these mailings, let's say Forbes, Forbes is one that comes to mind. So I created a mailing for them and it had a cartoon. It was by Leo Cullum, one of the New Yorker cartoonists. And it was about each recipient. Of course, they're all personalized, making a killing in the stock market. And it went out to, I don't know, it was like it's either a million or two million people. Now, to personalize it to all those people, all we needed to know was the correct spelling of their names because there were data insertion points for their first and last names in the captions. So as long as we got their name right, then the effect was stellar. It was fantastic. So that's wide personalization. All we need to know, we don't need to know the name of their dogs or where they went to school or uh, all these other things. We don't need to know any of that. That's, that's, that's wide personalization. And then there's deep personalization, which has become possible 
because of the proliferation of, of social media, really, and the internet, I suppose, as well, but, but certainly social media. We all have profiles, and there's this phenomenon called profile scraping. And so you can do profile scrapes on people and find out the name of their dog, what kind of dog it is, what their favorite coffee is, all these things. You can find out anything almost about a person and then craft something or personalize something essentially to them based on those interests. And so that's deep personalization. And what I, and I wrote about it in the book because I was finding that people were misunderstanding the two versions and sort of mapping the rules of one or the expectations of one onto the other, and that doesn't work. And so you have to recognize which is which. And really the, the two versions have very different, I, I don't want to say that one is superior to the other or one is wrong, the other one's right, because that's not, that's not the case at all. They're both very useful, uh, but they're, they're very different. So if I was using, let's say, my cartoon device, the, my big board system, contact system, big eight, 18 by 24 inch, quarter inch thick foam core board with a cartoon about the recipient, we couldn't possibly support creating new cartoons for each person based on what somebody grabbed from a po- profile scrape. It just wouldn't work. It would, it would just fall in on itself. You can't, you can't create that many cartoons. If we, we find a cartoon that fits it. You know, we, we probably a lot of times it's about someone's success in business and it commemorates it in a sort of backhanded way. So they love it. They love those. Those are the kinds of cartoons that they'll keep in their offices the rest of their careers. And we use that. We sort of I guess we probably in a way we play to a persona in wide personalization, whereas in deep personalization, you're just it's every instance of an outreach is a campaign of one. You just. We, you know, you, you've searched and there's one great practitioner of deep personalization, Mikey Pauly. And he, he, oh my God, he's like an assassin or a, or a sniper. He's looking for any little thing that he can find that. What does he sell? He works for a company called Docsend. And so one of the, one of his stories was that he was watching a, a, a prospect and uh, he discovered this picture of the prospect in his office. And then behind him was a, is a bulletin board that had all these stickers and all these little things up on the bulletin board. And he zoomed way in on the picture and found a sticker for a, a brand of coffee that's just really obscure. So then he turned around and bagged that coffee and sent it to him as a sort of opening gift. And they of course the recipient was astonished. <laughs> How did you know that? It's because he's he's quite observant and crafts these um, gifts based on what he's seeing. But it, there are so many stories of people doing this, and it's really quite effective. It just, I guess, the the drawback there is that it's a campaign of one over and over and over again, so it's not terribly scalable. And the the marketer doesn't. If the marketer has a team of sales reps doing this, then the marketer won't know what's being sent, and so you lose uh, a lot of control over your brand image as those things are happening. And I guess it's probably easy for someone to make, it, make a misstep. Whereas wide personalization is based on finding something that, well, I'll, I'll use cartoons again for a moment. The, you found a cartoon that makes sense for to send to all CEOs. And then you have messaging that is also just very, very tightly created and reviewed and, and refined. So you then have all kinds of, I mean, you have total control over your brand messaging in, in that campaign. And that goes out to goes out to as many people as you want to send it to. It'll get cost prohibitive sending something like a big board, but that's that's it allows for for that complete control of of brand message and scalability. Whereas 
the um, I think the thing that's really really interesting about deep personalization is anyone can do it. You don't have to have a an agency hired to do it. You don't have to have anybody helping you do it. You just start scraping profiles and finding what people are interested in, and sending a gift. Start sending a gift that is based on that that um, those findings in the profile scrape. And it really could be as simple and straightforward as reading their LinkedIn profile and what social media posts they share or what they comment on, or perhaps Twitter or Facebook, and just getting to know them and looking for a way to form a connection. I remember another story from the book where somebody complained about the bad food in their cafeteria and the marketer said, oh, let me send your fruit. Well, didn't ask for permission, just simply sent a fruit basket and says, Gosh, I heard that you were having a hard time with the food in the cafeteria, and let's uh, chat over, you know, some fruit salad or something, and was able to make an introduction. Yeah, and that was Mikey, by the way. That was another Mikey <laughs> um, shot, rifle shot. Mm-hmm. So when this happens, do you always expect that one instance of the send will yield a result, or is it part of a campaign typically? I love that question too because it really speaks to the the evolve the I would say the evolution of um, of the contact marketing model. So it started with we're going to send or do something that is so audacious and so clever that it causes the person on the other end of the of the of the the campaign to say well, I love the way you think. Of course, let's do it. yes, let's meet. And so I don't mean to talk about my big boards all the time. That's not really, but but I'm so familiar with them that when we send the big board out. We expect that a, that a big chunk of the people we send them to are going to be saying, I love this. This is great. Thank you. We're, yeah, let's sure. Sure. Let's talk. And we find that, for example, I'm, I'm thinking about one one client, uh, Fortune 250, had told me that before we started working together, they were breaking through to their top accounts, the top stratum of accounts, exactly 0% of the time. And they thought it was crazy. That's not sustainable. <laughs> no, it's not. And they, they thought it was crazy of me to be suggesting cartoons would would solve all that for them. But in fact, it did. It changed it from a 0% contact rate to a 70% contact rate and a 50% meeting rate. But the thing is, as I wrote the next book, the latest book, Get the Meeting, I I was thinking about what, you know, the the model for contact marketing needs to evolve beyond that. Because if we're getting 70% contact rate and 50% meeting rate, by the way, those are huge numbers for a marketing campaign, any form of marketing. But it bothered me that well, if we're, why are we only getting seventy percent? You know, I love why, it. <laughs> why don't we get all of them? And one thing that had uh, influenced my thinking was I was interviewing someone on my podcast, and and they were saying, "Well, we did something like that, like your contact marketing campaigns." So we did this. Uh, they, they explained what it was. They said, "You know what? We projected that we would get an eighteen percent response rate, and guess what we got?" And I knew exactly what they'd get <laughs> because it was self fulfilling. Eighteen percent on the dot. They said, yeah, that's right. How did you know? And my question to them was, what if you had said that um, you were projecting 100% response? What would you have gotten then? And and so, you know, so it's, I I do think that we can actually get to, I think we can reset our baseline for response to these campaigns to 100%. But to do that, we have to add in some elements. And so the primary element beyond the the actual outreach of the campaign is to also build in a digital persistence campaign or track. And so the way, what that looks like at the moment, I'm sure we'll find many other ways to do this, but the, the one that I focused on in the book was let's use retargeting ads or remarketing ads. So those are those ads that you see when you go to llbean.com and you look at a pair of shoes and then ads from LL Bean about those shoes follow you everywhere you go on the web. And that's remarketing. 
You can also, though, run those ads. It's a little bit, there's a bit of a trick to it, but you can run those kinds of ads to people before you've ever connected with them. So before you've ever set your own tracking pixel to, to display those ads to them. And that becomes a wonderful way to, let's say, I don't know, sort of soften the, make it a little less of a cold call, warm it up, I suppose. I'll give you an example. If, if I wanted to reach you, Bill, I would be running ads that had my two books, how to get a meeting with anyone and get the meeting. And then the headline, one meeting can change everything. And then a little graphic to click on to go to Amazon to buy the book. It would look like you, and if you kept seeing these ads for two days, wherever you went on the web, it would look like Amazon is actually promoting my book. And, you know, I don't really want you to, I want you to buy the book, of course, but I'm, as in, in this respect, I don't even want you to click on the ads. All I want you to do is notice them so that it creates an impression so that by the time I call you, you're saying, oh my God, I'm hearing from the guy, mm-hmm. I'm hearing from the author of those books. That's right. Wow. It's all positioning. Yeah. And so those, those ads can also, I mean, they can change as you go from pre-contact to contact to running throughout the sales cycle and even beyond into retention they can continue to, I was about to say pester, but persevere, <laughs> persist. Hopefully they don't pester the, the person, but they just keep you, they keep them aware of, of you and they keep that, um, that dialogue alive. And they do it in a way that I think impresses them because if they're on, let's say sites like WSJ.com or I don't know, wherever you get the, wherever they get their news, Fox or, or New York Times or CNN, it doesn't matter. If you're seeing those ads, it's impressive. It looks like a national ad campaign. And for a very much less cost than expected, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you're paying, it's a bet. It's all variable, but you're certainly not paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to run them. And I think that's something I want to highlight for everyone listening is that doing this as part of a, an approach that has multiple steps to make multiple impressions and it leads to a conversation, which leads to a meeting, gets you in the door. And it's a way of using modern technology to support it with clever ideas and being someone who takes the time to really understand what will attract the attention of the person you're trying to reach. Those are all key ideas that you bring out. And it's really important to say that just sending a cartoon clipping isn't the same thing as contact marketing. There's much, much more to it. No, and I, and I really don't mean to, to make the point that it's all about cartooning either. I'm, the thing is, you know, you bring yourself to the into the campaign. So, if you were really good at knitting, Kenny, uh, oh gosh, suddenly his name went out my out of my head. But anyway, there's a great story oh, the of the fellow with the knives. No, that's that's John Rulin. Oh God, I can't. It'll come to me. But okay. um, for now, we'll we'll just call him Kenny. Kenny tells this great story of uh, of someone who has been watching what he does. He's a painter, so he sends his paintings, and and she had said, "Well, how do I? I, I don't paint. How do I do?" He said, what's the thing that you can't stop doing, that you would, you can't stop doing, thing that you just love to do and you would never stop doing? She said, oh, well, I love knitting. Okay, knit something, (laughs) then send that. So a lot of, a lot of what we're doing in these campaigns, if we're doing them individually and uh, small businesses and small business owners, I I would imagine would be doing it like that. You reflect some of yourself in the, in the campaigns. I think it's inevitable. So certainly that's what's happening with me in cartoons, but I really don't mean to say that that contact marketing is about cartoons or cartooning or that you have to be a cartoonist. You could, you have all the talent you need and there's all sorts of, of ways to, to break through and they have nothing to do really, or only very few of them have, have much to do with cartoons. 
I think that's illustrated very well in the book where there's so many different examples of things that people send from swords to paintings to plastic discs in order to get their message through and make contact. The idea is to send something unique and thoughtful and personalized that's going to make an impact and make the person say, like you say, I like the way you think. Let's talk further. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And and another way, perhaps another way to put it is you've got to be using insightful ways of providing insight. And when you do that, I mean, there are things that we can say about ourselves and it's okay. Like I'm tired, you know, or I'd love to do this. But you can't say things like I'm great, you know, or I'm the best or, you know, I'm I'm the, there are things that you, they, I guess some might think they, they build their their credibility by saying I'm the very best at what I do. And I think it's just has the opposite effect. Someone else needs to say that about you. Then it has all kinds of credibility. It's the same thing as in, you know, when you're looking to meet someone in a dating situation, you can't go up and say this, I'm the greatest, but if you have a wingman, then it's positioning. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That is true. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Stu, are you ready for the, my quest for the best lightning round? Yes, absolutely. Let's go. Let's do it. All right. So, Think of starting a morning routine for an ideal day, and what are three components that you want to make sure are part of your morning routine so that it sets you up for having a a truly productive and enjoyable day? You know, well, I live on an island. It's beautiful. I'm out in the woods. We're in a forest. And so I think the first is just waking up and with my wife and having a a cup of tea. (laughs) It's crazy. It doesn't sound crazy at all, actually. It sounds sounds delightful. I got another one. I don't know. I'm not going to give you great answers here because I think reading the news is one and checking in with social media, seeing what's happening. I do a lot of posts of videos and I'd love to just check in and see what's happening there. And another one is just to go outside. It's probably the best one when you end up going outside. It's just crisp and cool right now. And it's just the air is so clean and it just feels good. Is it outside just to look around and enjoy the fresh air? Do you go for a walk? You know, we, we're, we're on we're on acreage. So just just going out into the acreage is just, yeah, it's just not on the street somewhere. It's just walking around and, and taking in the, the odors and the, and the sights and the feelings of, of being there. And what is your favorite tea to make in the morning? Well, there, there are a few. One is, I mean, green tea is so good for us. And that's great. Green tea is wonderful. Cinnamon tea is great. There's a really interesting one. And it sort of relates to a book that I'll release sometime soon. I, I, but it's uh, because it's about weeds. But there's dandelion tea. doesn't taste very good, but I know it's supposed to be very, very good for you. And what do you think is the biggest obstacle for a small business leader to adopt contact marketing? Well, I, I would imagine that for one, they might think that it's you know, marketing is generally expensive, but this isn't expensive. It doesn't have to be. So it might be one, one just I, I, I'm not creative enough, perhaps, or I can't afford to do it. Yeah, we we talked about three. I don't. Maybe it's who would I go do it to? Because you have to have a list of people that that um, that you know you could get through. Maybe another one would be, well, I'm you know I'm a small business owner and I'm not I'm not important enough perhaps to reach out to the CEO of a Fortune 50. But you I mean, anybody is. You just have have to have a good reason for reaching out. What do you think your definition of sales is? Well, obviously, it's a transfer of goods for payment, <laughs> you know, but, but I think the, the more interesting way to look at it is these are connections. These are human to human connections that you're making. I mean, people, we hear it all the time that people buy from people they know, like, and trust. And so you've got to make human connections and that's just a lot of fun. So 
I guess one of the things that might be a definition of it is fun, <laughs> you know, having fun, making and 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 creating real human to human connections. I mean, a lot of my clients have become lifelong friends, so they are real connections. I totally get that, <laughs> and it's so enjoyable to have that deep connection with someone. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you something about your own personal journey. What do you think is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I don't draw enough. Yeah, I think that's the best. That's it. It's that I keep re- resolving to to draw one cartoon a day and I don't do it. <laughs> I end up just, just sort of, I get to the end of the day and I'm, I'm just exhausted and certainly mentally exhausted. And, and, um, and so it's not happening anywhere near as much as it should. So let's talk a little bit about when you're checking social media posts in the morning, you're not just going with what comes into your feed. You're looking and seeing what are the results of some of the campaigns that you've launched, aren't you? Yeah. It's sort of like tending a garden. Yeah. Talk talk more about that. How do you approach it? What are some of the ways that you track it? Well, I, so I, happened to connect with uh, with a couple of people who I think were, were leading a trend in in LinkedIn and, and that was early on and and what they were doing was writing what they called broetry but this, so it's this form of writing that so every sentence is sent is, is a paragraph every sentence and and it's sort of long longer form storytelling although there you have 1250 characters I think but longer form storytelling and then there's podcast episode with it or or obviously a link to it or a video embedded in it and so that what they what they did though their, their innovation really was that they then gathered into pods or groups to amplify each other's posts and so i, I belong to several of these you go in and you post then you um, uh, go into the this ongoing dm um, thread between yourself and all these the people in the group, and you then post a, a, a message to everyone saying, "I just posted this." There's a link to it. They go out and they they go and they check like and they they, they engage with it. And the, that early engagement, that quick early engagement, apparently trips trips something in the LinkedIn algorithm, and so it it tends to expose your posts to more and more people on the on the system and you can get a lot of views the 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 record for one of my posts was um it's like something like 207,000 views that's wow. a lot of views that's that is lot. and it's more usually it's something like i don't know a couple uh, it depends on what it is in in video it's it may be a thousand to to 2000 views if it's if it's a podcast or a cartoon then it could be Quite, I mean, you know, it's it's not too unusual to go to twenty thousand. That's a lot of engagement. Twenty thousand people—that's that's remarkable. And so I mentioned it was like tar- tending a garden. So once you've done that, and of course you also go into into your other pod mates or or group mates posts to um, to help with their, with theirs. Then you watch and respond and have fun. And it's so it is kind of like watching a garden grow. I love the intentionality behind your work and how you use your creativity, but also combine it with business smarts so that it leads to beneficial outcomes. What do you think attributes to the creativity you bring to it that also lends itself to wanting to be commercially successful? I mean, is it just the idea that you're going to be able to impact and maybe have fun with more and more people? I guess, So I think what you're asking is why is, or how is it that there's art combined with business sensibilities, perhaps? And, and what, it, maybe what, 
I, and I certainly I enjoy both, and uh, and I think the mixture of both. I think when you when you create overlays in you or in your in what you do, what your expertise is. So mine, you know, I've got an overlay of I'm a Wall Street Journal cartoonist now, and and then also I'm a marketer. In fact, I'm a Hall of Fame twice nominated Hall of Fame marketer. I'm not a marketer. I'm sorry, I'm not a Hall of Fame marketer, but I've been nominated twice. So these kinds of things overlay and really and they create really really interesting patterns in in your expertise and it makes it whatever it is that you're doing it makes it absolutely perfectly suited to you it's the thing that you would do for free it's the thing that you just do naturally so i tend to just i i love using audacity and creativity to create great outcomes in business it's just and it's probably just really, it's just, I think probably as a, you know, as a kid, I was a prankster and I'm still a prankster. It's just, it's taken a different form. Well, Stu, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've shared so many great ideas that were sure to inspire everyone listening. And it started with looking at Playboy cartoons and <laughs> then <laughs> leading a, a full career all the way through and finding ways to create an association that overlaid direct marketing and cartoonists, being able to share with people and come up with things like humor is the truth revealed with a twist that gives your cartoons and your messaging and your marketing an added edge. You shared with us a really great example of how you used test campaigns with the Rolling Stone and Bon Appetit magazine to beat their best direct response campaigns by 100%, not only in response, but also in conversion. You explained the difference between deep versus wide personalization. You talked about how it's important to reset the baseline for response when you use a creative and innovative approach. You reminded us of the importance of putting yourself in the campaign so that it's truly personalized, so that's a faster way to connect with people. And the insightful ways of, of adding insight really goes a long way towards doing that. And then again, I go back to the idea of the overlays with the art and business background that you just talked about and how important that is to really finding each of our unique niches as we pursue our own quest for the best. Stu Heineck, author of Get the Meeting. Once again, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Stu, before we say goodbye for now, can you tell us where to find out more about you and your work online? Sure. Well, you can visit my author site. That's, you have to know how to spell my name. That's stuheinek.com. So S-T-U-H-E-I-N-E-C-K-E.com. And you can also, you know, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. So mention that you heard me on, on Bill's show and, and I'm happy to jump in and, uh, and connect with you there. And that's probably the best way to do it. Well, we'll link to your sites and we'll link to your social media profiles, including LinkedIn and enjoy looking forward to everything that comes next. Thanks once again, Stu. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. 
We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.